Welcome to Women in the Arena podcast, the podcast celebrating women doing extraordinary things in plain sight. I'm your host, Audra Egan, and our mission is to elevate the value, strength, and resilience each woman brings to the world. Without further delay, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome in, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me again this week. This week, I have yet another woman that has made an art out of turning the uncomfortable and the seemingly impossible into a remarkable opportunity. This week, I am joined by Elizabeth Rowe, and I have a list of accolades for you, to just for you to listen to what this woman has accomplished. She is the principal flutist for the Boston Symphony. She is a TED Talk speaker. She also is a social justice advocate, as well as she is the author of her landmark equal pay lawsuit and the Boston Globe called her the Bostonian of the Year and nicknamed her the Fighter. It is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you Elizabeth Rowe. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for welcoming welcoming me into this community of incredible women. You know, the, this growing community has changed over the last two years and has expanded and flourished, the one thing that hasn't changed is how much we want to celebrate each other and how much we want to come together to help one another and to guide one another and to, you know, have other women learn from our mistakes (laughs) and, and maybe teach them on what to avoid in, in, in the future. It's been an amazing experience, and I'm so happy that you said yes to join us and share your experiences with us and your growth on your journey that was not so fun. We'll, We'll dive into it because we'll dive into the elephant in the room, which is this this lawsuit. And it it's an equal pay lawsuit. And it was I want to say that it was one of the first of its kind. And it was something that from when you and I spoke earlier, it was it was almost harder to do to do nothing than to stand up for yourself and say something that this isn't right. So, Elizabeth, let us know how you got to that place of I need to do something and what transpired because of it. Yeah, thank you for for this question. And I think that, you know, whether it's a lawsuit or any other kind of dramatic moment in our lives, we often find ourselves at this crossroads where we have a couple of choices. And as you described, for me, I reached a point where I had a choice to kind of accept the status quo and accept my current circumstances, which I had been working very, very hard behind the scenes for many, many years to try to correct, to try to um, create a more equitable compensation situation for myself in my workplace. And I reached a point where I had to make a choice between 
learning to live with that or taking a big step into really the unknown. And I had to sit with myself and ask myself, you know, neither of these choices feel particularly <laughs> great. So which is the one that I feel like I can live with and which is the one that maybe I would really regret in retrospect. Now, I want to say that you know, we make these kinds of choices without a crystal ball and without being able to look ahead into the future. And there can be a sense that um, there's only one right choice at a crossroad like that. And I think that it's really important to say that I made that particular choice that I made for myself. And it has resulted in some really powerful shifts for me in my life and my career. I also want to say that for plenty of folks and for plenty of women, you know, they might reach a crossroad like that and make a different choice. And that's equally valuable and equally powerful. So I think it's just important when we tell stories like this to kind of make room for the other choice as well. But for me, that's what I did. And and, and I'm sure because I'm trying to I'm trying to put myself mentally in the spot where you were in. And I think a lot of us have been in similar spots. And you had to do something really terrifying because first of all, you're musician. Musicians is a very small knit community. It's there's only finite amount of 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 spaces and spots across the country and across the globe. And you decided that I'm really going to step out because I I can't live with the decision to not do something. How terrified were you of I mean, I granted, I realized that in your soul, you're just like, there is no other choice for, for you. I can't imagine that it was any less scary. Oh, absolutely not. And I think that, I mean, just because we arrive at a certain place of clarity, um, which, you know, I, I really believe that that all of us are capable of great acts of courage and that to take that act, to take that step, whatever it might be, and by a great act of courage, what I mean to say is, is something, anything that feels scary for us, right, and unknown. Um, that we, I think the definition of courage is acting while being afraid, right? It's not waiting to feel confident or waiting to be absolutely positively sure it's going to work out, but it's really, it's taking that step while being afraid. And if there were a scale of one to 10 of fear, I think I was at, you know, 327 or something. (laughs) I was off the charts. Um, And I want to say too, that it was for me as a performer, um, part of what was so challenging was that you know, I was getting up on stage every night and essentially demonstrating, or at least from my point of view, was demonstrating my my worth to not just to myself and to my colleagues and to my employer, but to audiences of thousands of people who were following this and reading about it in the newspapers and who were sort of passing their own judgments about, you know, who should be compensated in what way. And so the demands as a as a performing artist to get up and to to do that night after night were and they were at a level that I had not experienced before or really since in my performing career. I had a lot of training and skills that equipped me for that, but it was at a really different level than I'd faced in the past. I can't imagine because first of all, it's nerve wracking to be a performer regardless, but you're working for the company, for lack of better words, that you were currently involved in a lawsuit with, and you're standing in front of these audiences night after night, basically having to reprove yourself every single night, and that you are, quote unquote, worthy 
of the lawsuit. How awful. I mean, just how awful night after night having to prove that you're worthy of standing in that spot. I, I just can't. How, how in the world did you manage that pressure? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, part of it and what I'm so interested in, in, in so much of the work that I do now with, with my coaching clients that I support is to, is to challenge and question some of the, the stories and assumptions that we make. And so that certainly was the story I was telling myself was that I was having to prove my worth every single night. And, and part of, I think if, if I hadn't done some work in the moment to, uh, lessen the grip of that story, it I might not have made it through, right? So part of what I had to do was to say to myself, well, maybe that is true. It's certainly how I perceive things. And also, I believe and I know that there are people here who are listening for music just for music's sake. There are people here who are cheering me on and rooting for me. There it's all, it's all the whole, you know, the audience, the newspapers, the critics, my colleagues, all of that. It's a very um, multi-dimensional kind of experience. And so for me to kind of release some of that rigidity of that narrative that I had going in my head was very helpful. And also I had to absolutely work to bring my focus to the work at hand, to to not be thinking about things I couldn't control, like what other people thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> and to really focus in on what I could control, which is how I performed. And to me, that's been a skill that I have used in all sorts of spaces in performance spaces and elsewhere is that distinction of, you know, really getting clear about what you can control and what you can't and levering, leveraging your efforts and your energy on what you can and really working as best as possible to release the stuff that you can't control, which at that particular time felt like a mountain of stuff that I could not control. I I just, I can't imagine. But as, as you're describing this, what you did was you flipped that negative self-talk on its ear and decided, okay, there's all this here that I can't control. But if I can, if I concentrate on that, it's going to consume me. And so you just decided to concentrate on the things that you loved about performing, which I, I think is an invaluable information because you could, and, and um, invaluable advice because you can take that same situation or that that same mindset and apply it to any situation uh you know we don't all have to be on a stage and and play for audiences night after night but we could be doing that in our personal life in our professional life how often do we give this self-talk that may or may not be true it may only be our perceptions in our head it may, it could be a whole bunch of stuff. It could be that that whole imposter syndrome that we hate hearing about, but we know it's real. Uh, I just, I, I'm imagining you on that stage every night, giving it the best you've got every single night, even though you're under all that pressure. But then at the core of it, you you took it and you played for the joy of playing and those that are there just to listen to music. In the middle of all that chaos, what a beautiful sentiment to get yourself really, really quiet and concentrate on the whole point of what brought you there to begin with. Absolutely. And to just take it down to an even more kind of 
foundational level, you know, it's, it's <laughs> sometimes we just have to focus on, you know, breathing in and breathing out and putting one foot literally in front of the other sometimes, you know, and so even to, to, to take it down to its most elemental level and to say, okay, this is what I am trained to do. This is what I know how to do. If I can just gather my concentration and gather my focus and, and, and stay on track with what I know how to do. It, it's a it's a really powerful tool I think that we can all use when we are under duress whether it's in a meeting whether it's in a you know contract negotiation whether it's in a, some sort of a performance or a presentation that we can the distraction of all those thoughts and of all the people around us and of everything in the room that we can't control can overwhelm our minds and if we just bring our focus back routinely to our breath our body knowing what we know, that we can do and just taking one step after the next. It's very reorienting and, and, and calming. It's from, from that statement, it sounds like, and I know that this is true, but it, it sounds like you took those very practices that you were doing. And in the middle of this, this horrible situation, which turned out to be, it had a good result, obviously you found something in the middle of that. And you had mentioned something to me when you and I first met on this this thought of profession versus passion. And what you said to me is that they aren't always the same. And you found a passion in the middle of this. So tell me a little bit about that and how that happened. I'm sure that that was a surprise to you. Because you, you've worked your entire life on this profession. And, and obviously, you wouldn't have done it if you didn't love it. But in the middle of this, you went, well, maybe there's something else that is lighting my soul on fire. Yeah, I don't think there has ever been a more surprising moment in my professional life than what you are describing. And, you know, I've had focused on being a, a musician and a performer since I was, you know, really in middle school and certainly in high school. And I really had never, never looked away from that. I had, I was talking to somebody recently and I described it as if I sort of got on a moving sidewalk at the, at the airport, you know, and it just kept going in that direction. And I was very talented, very disciplined, creative, hardworking, had all of the um, skills and tools and privilege that it took to Mm -hmm. pursue a career like that and was very successful at a very early age. And achieved this position in the Boston Symphony. I won that audition when I was, you know, 29 and it's really one of maybe at most five equivalent positions in this country on my instrument. And so it I re- basically reached the absolute pinnacle of my industry at that age. And for most musicians to even dream of reaching a level like that is it's a, it's a it's a moonshot and then to be there is it's you know, you feel overwhelmed with great fortune, with privilege, with responsibility, with all of that. And so I had spent most of my adult professional life either aspiring to that or being in that space. And, you know, what happened over time is, first of all, I had reached the top. Um, and I had discovered that the top, at least in my, in this particular industry, and I think in many industries, um, isn't what we think it is looking at it from the outside necessarily. I would agree with that, that you work so hard and you get to the top and then you're like, that's it. Hmm. This is it. Hmm. Yeah. This is the whole or thing. Maybe, 
Right. And sometimes it's, is this the whole thing? And sometimes it's, wow, that is a whole thing, but it's a really different thing than I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be. And, um, and, you know, so I had was experiencing some of that. And then I also had this really stark experience of recognizing that the top really wasn't the same for everyone. And certainly not for me as a woman in my position. So that, as we talked about already, led me to, to file this lawsuit. But in the, in the course of this lawsuit, which had gone public, it had gotten splashed all over the news, all over, you know, the States, Europe, it was on CNN and Time Magazine. I mean, it was just everywhere. Um, the orchestra had was on tour in Europe. We were traveling around Europe together, performing in all of these very famous concert halls and in front of all of these audiences. And there was just a moment when a confluence of events happened around the lawsuit that just were very, very difficult for me. And I remember distinctly walking down the street. I was in Vienna. I was headed to this very, very famous concert hall to play a concert. And I felt like I was under just intense emotional duress. And I remember coming to a stop at the street corner and it was hot. It was in August. I was carrying my instrument and it's like this lightning bolt almost struck and it sounds kind of cliche, but it really was. And I stopped at the street corner and I thought to myself, I don't have to do this. Like, I just don't have to do this job. I don't, I can stop. I can quit. That's okay. And that that exact thought had never, ever, ever once crossed my mind ever as a professional human being. And ever. ever. Not once. Not once. That was the first time those words entered my mind because I had been so privileged, successful, lucky, um, and had and had just it just would never had never occurred to me that there was any other choice other than being in this very visible, um, extremely prestigious position that I was in. And so I stood there and it's like almost as if this sort of window in my brain opened up or this door in my mind opened up. And then there was this whole other universe of possibilities. Because the next question is, once I was like, well, I don't have to do this. And the next question is, well, but then what am I going to (laughs) do? And it's, I will tell you, it's not as if another like bolt of lightning struck me and I was like, oh, aha, this is what I should do. <laughs> and and well, that also, was handy. I, I got the, I got the question and the answer. Yeah. I don't think it ever happens that way. <laughs> and so I, what, what, so, you know, that was a number of years ago. I am still employed by the Boston Symphony, but, but what happened at that time, so I didn't quit. Um, but what happened was that was the beginning of a long exploration of me uh, pursuing inquiries and questions around what is it that I actually, um, what is my, what is my passion? What is my calling? Is it what I've been doing this whole time is being really good at something is being the best, whatever that means at something. Does that mean that it's your calling? Does that mean that it's your passion? And is it possible to have multiple callings or passions? And, you know, what's this rule? It's like the Prince Charming rule, right? Like, <laughs> so, so that day was the beginning of this big exploration for me. Um, I hired a coach. I just started to dig around and start to question. And I think that that was just the power of asking that very first primary question is what set me on a completely different path. And it's something that would never have happened, I don't believe, or would have not happened for many, many more years, I believe, had I not been 
in the middle of that lawsuit and pushed as hard as I was in that in that circumstance. So how old were you, if you can recall, when you had that moment of, oh, you know, is, um, is this what I, I'm supposed I, to do? Yeah, I think I well. So I'm 48 now. Um, so I must have been, I have to do the math, 44, 45. Okay. Yeah. So it, you know, you weren't, you weren't in, in your thirties where your thirties are, are very weird, confusing time because, you know, they've told you that you're an adult <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, you're like, okay, I guess I'm a real adult now. And you're trying to do all, you're trying to do the right thing all the time. Um, in your forties and you're right, you, you were a, a little bit early, but not by much, uh, almost without exception, every woman that I have spoken to that starts to hit mid forties, mid forties, late, late forties, early fifties suddenly has this moment of, oh, <laughs> you know, is this, is this what I want to do or where am I? I've been buried under all of this expectation and responsibility and all of this this stuff on top of me, whether it was whether you placed it on yourself or it was placed upon you, you'd been carrying it all this time. And like I said, somewhere in that age, we get tired and tired and we're tired of carrying it. And we're also we're also tired of staying in our own lane. Or what the expected lane is, and for you, I'm you'd mentioned the responsibility, and I'm sure that that was part of it that drove you because you were a very young principal musician, female, and I'm sure that the responsibility was completely overwhelming, and something that probably didn't leave your mind very often. It, it's probably was always in the back of your mind. Uh, but when you finally thought, okay, what happens when I put myself first? It opens up this strange new world of possibilities. And I, I don't know how it affected you, but for me, it was so overwhelming. You don't know where to start. You just know that you can't go back. So how how was that experience for you in the middle of this, in the midst of this, and and you're trying to figure out, okay, is this really my voice, or do I have a different voice? Do I have something to say? Um, do I have something else to give? I just I I find that fascinating because everybody's story is different, but it all starts the same. Something triggered it, and we stand back and go, what What have we done? <laughs> Well, I think it's it's such a big question and a great question. And I think what's really underneath all of that, it's not even where am I, it's really who am I? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a big and hard question. And I think oftentimes we're busy doing life for so long. We're busy, you know, kind of launching careers and you know, if we are starting families, we're starting families. If we are, you know, we're kind of in that early phase of our professional lives and there's often not, especially if we've achieved a fair amount of success early, there's often not an opportunity to slow down and say, who am I? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I know what I've accomplished. I know what my goals are. I know all of that, but who am I? And so I think that 
you're absolutely right that um, once we open up that question and start to explore, it can feel overwhelming because it's it's like, well, am I a philanthropist? Am I a public speaker? Am I a teacher? Am I an artist? What does being an artist mean? Am I a leader? Am I a like, what the heck am I? <laughs> and right and and yeah. so I think there's it can be overwhelming. And what really helped me, what is a tool that I have used many many times with myself and with my with my clients, and I return to over and over again, is this question of kind of looking back over the totality of your either your your life, but certainly your professional life, your adult life, and looking to what really energizes you, which is a very different question from what you're good at, what you're being paid for, um, what your skill set is, um, what you think you are, right? Mm-hmm. But to look to what energizes you. And when I started to explore that for myself, I was able to look back through my professional life and notice that I had for years, decades, really, been in conversation with peers, students, colleagues that went far beyond my capacity as an artist or as a flutist. These might have even been flute students of mine who would come to me not because they wanted to learn how to play a particular passage, but because they were struggling with a choice they were about to make or they were struggling with identity or confidence or trying to decide um, you know, what, how they wanted to define success for themselves. And so when I started to look back and think about what, where I had derived the most energy, the most satisfaction, the most sense of meaning and purpose in my work, I assumed it was going to be on stage. And what I do on stage is meaningful and there is purpose to it. And it does serve a really important, you know, purpose in the world. And yet for me, speaking just from my own lived experience, it was these conversations that was where I found my, that that lit me up, right? That made my heart full. And so when I started to get really clear on that, which, you know, again, it wasn't the lightning bolt that like struck on the other side of the street in Vienna. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> but once I started to get clear on that, then it, then it, helped me really decide what I wanted to create and build and shape and where I wanted to deepen my skills and my knowledge and what I wanted to pursue, which is what has ultimately led me to my work that I do as a high performance and leadership coach, where I work with people who aren't just musicians and artists and creatives, but who are in you know all sorts of different industries. And it it is so powerfully energizing to me and meaningful and full of purpose that I feel just immensely lucky that I'm able to to do that work, and that I found that for myself. And as I had said in the beginning, what I find remarkable is that you took one of the lowest points in your life because it was awful. It was gut wrenching. It probably felt like it was you were going through a divorce. Um, I mean, I can't imagine. But you took that and found purpose in the middle of it, which is such a special gift that I think most women have that they can go through this horrible, awful, terrible experience, but then dig through it and find purpose and meaning of in the middle of it. And you've taken that and decided, well, I'm going to help other people reach the same thing. And so who, who are your clients or the audience that you're trying to reach 
predominantly in that practice? Yeah. So most of the time, most of the folks that I work with are high achieving professionals and I, who are either struggling to really thrive in a demanding work environment, which I think many of us have certainly experienced that, um, or who, who are working to kind of successfully navigate either a career or personal transition. So there's so many qualities that are in common with with high achieving professionals in demanding work environments. I mean, that sums it up right there, right? There's yep. there's a lot. You know, when you talk about finding purpose or finding meaning from a very, very low point, and we so many of us face low points for all sorts of reasons and many low points in the course of our lives and our careers. And I find that especially for high achieving driven folks, you know, we're really focused on the outcome. Like, where do I need to go from here? How can I make this productive? How can I make this a learning experience? How can I like maximize my potential through this difficult thing? And I find that a key first step and something that many of us skip over is the very first step, which is self-compassion. And I think oftentimes for driven folks, we just like skip right on over that. We're like, self-compassion is for other folks, right? (laughs) You know what? I don't even know if I learned about self-compassion until the last couple of years because I didn't have any choice because, you know, we were all locked down and all I had was me and my family. I no longer had flying all over the country to distract me. And I, I hate to admit it, that was the first time I'd ever heard of self-compassion because I didn't think that was a thing. Yeah. A lot of us don't think it's a thing, or if we think it's a thing, we think it's a thing for other people. And, you know, and really if back to me standing on that street corner in Vienna, if, if my first instinct when I had reached that really low point was to, was to beat up on myself about it. If I had been like, how could you have let this happen? Why did you make such a dumb choice? Like, what are you doing here? this is a disaster. You've created this huge mess. Like, you know, what a, you know, what a, what a like failure you are, right? That's like how harsh a lot of our voices can be in our own heads. Right. And that wasn't my voice to myself. I had developed some self-compassion skills over, I think many, many years as a performer where, you know, we make mistakes in public all the time. We fall down and pick ourselves up all the time. And if we beat ourselves up, aggressively every time we do that, it, it it actually wears you down to the point that you just can't get back up on stage, right? So you have to, or at least I have had to, develop those skills of self-compassion. And that's, I think, what then unlocks the curiosity, the, the ability to kind of look around and say, well, what else is there? What could there be? What's going on here? What, Who am I? What do I want? All those big, big questions that then brings us to achieve some clarity and then then that's where we can take that last step, which is that courageous step, which is to move in that direction, whatever that is, right? So for me, it's the compassion, the curiosity, clarity, and then the courage that combined really help have helped me and, and I think help a lot of my clients kind of move through these challenging situations that they face and that they're in. Well, you are describing what how... I refer to in the same way that I refer to myself as a recovering type A personality <laughs> and, because, you know, it's, you really are learning a, a new way of life. Um, much like you described, I would start with the end goal in mind and 
and work my way backwards and create a plan on on all the steps to get there. It's how I lived my entire life without bending. And I was miserable, absolutely miserable. And are these, so I'm, the reason why I asked this question or I'm posing this in such a way is because I'm wondering how many people come to you in the same state that they've, they've accomplished all these, this stuff, they've have all these goals, they have all the, the awards on the walls and that kind of thing, but they're miserable and they come to you and go, I, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do now. This is, this is all I know how to do. And so how many of them come to you and say, Elizabeth, help. I have, I don't know what's wrong with me. Fix me. <laughs> fix me, yes. <laughs> right. Don't you all wish we could just go somewhere and, and say, fix me, and have someone say, I know exactly what to do. <laughs> Take this this little yes. blue pill, and That's you'll be right. great in the morning. Yeah, yes. that would be lovely. Doesn't Welcome exist. to the 1950s, right? There we go. Yeah, again, right? exactly. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. What you're describing is is so common, and I think that it can be uh, one of the things that is incredibly important and empowering. You know, this really stems from the Me Too movement, right? Which is is not about what you and I are talking about, but what is premised on the idea that when someone can share their own difficult experience, their own challenges, their own whether it's harassment in the workplace, whether it's having risen to the top and somehow not feeling the way they thought they should feel, right? Or not deriving the satisfaction that they wished that they could from it. One of the the most toxic and difficult aspects of that is feeling like you're completely alone and unique in that experience. Because when we feel like we're the only one experiencing it, the next logical conclusion is that we did something ourselves to create this, right? That we are responsible for this and that there's some something shameful about it. And when this is the power of the Me Too movement, right? When one person can say this happened to me and someone else can say, you know, that or something similar happened to me too, mm-hmm. that moment of empathy, and it doesn't have to be an identical experience. It doesn't have to be, you know, at the same scale or anything, but that that moment of empathy is it is empowering. It is freeing. It's just like this weight lifts. And I, for me, speak from a lot of experience with this specifically because during the course of my earlier career as a, as a performer, as a woman in a very male dominated industry, at least at the very highest levels, um, I had, I really felt like I was an only, and I had developed a, a really strong narrative for myself that Nobody could understand what I was going through. Nobody really knew what it's like to be a performer and a woman in this situation. And and yeah, my industry is pretty esoteric and there's some, you know, it, there are details that, you know, are. but that's true for absolutely every industry that that's out there. Another really unexpected benefit from this lawsuit is that I, so many people reached out to me from all walks of life, all industries, all over the world. And they either said, I see you, I thank you this is inspiring, or they said some version of me too. I was able to receive this immense amount of support and connection with folks that I never imagined that I would have had anything in common with before. And it was an incredibly uh, empowering and important lesson for me to learn. And so I think that what is equally important is for all of these high achieving professionals out there who are not thriving, who are struggling, who are bumping up against hard things, whether it's workplace environment or their own 
feelings about the work that they do or their sense of identity or confidence, all of those things is to say, yes, absolutely. This is so common. It just is. And you're not alone. This is not unique to you. And there's nothing broken or wrong about you. And there are skills and tools and opportunities to make your life better and to also to to connect with others who are going to help, which is you know precisely what you're doing here with this podcast, right? Is yeah. making that possible, right? So that yes. we don't feel so isolated and alone in our experiences. Yeah. The whole point is to connect. And what you're describing, I think, was magnified by everybody being locked down for the last couple of years. And then as we've emerged, we've emerged weird. Uh, you know, it's like, for, <laughs> it's like we've forgotten social graces and, and how to interact with anybody that we're not related to or that we didn't didn't hunker down with or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're awkward. We've come out awkward. And, you know, we're a bunch of we're a bunch of freshmen in high school, again, being awkward <laughs> with other people. You're saying, you know, you're not alone. Let me let me help walk you through this. We're all awkward right now. Every single one of us is completely weird, but we're doing it together. And I'm curious as through your practice, and you've been doing this through sev- for several years, what's your favorite story that you can share with us with one of your clients that may have come to you and said, Fix me. What's wrong with me? I'm broken. I don't know what I did. I don't know how I lost my focus. Fix my focus or whatever it was. This person emerged on the other side, a completely different person, but so much more fulfilled. Oh, that's such a great question. And, you know, as you were speaking, I I had one particular client leap to mind um, who works in the creative fields and um, was tied up in knots because they were wanting to create a project and actually commission some, some work from another artist. And they had built up this incredible narrative about how they weren't um, important enough to make this commission. They weren't uh, skilled enough. They didn't have enough knowledge to create this commission. And then there was this fear around, well, what if I, if I make this commission and it's not what I envisioned or it's not it's not good enough. There's this huge bundle of fear and of questions about status and standing and who am I and you know all of this. And they just were paralyzed and could not take a step forward. Absolutely could not take a step forward. And after working together for some time, we ended up being able to shift that completely on its on its head. And instead of saying, you know, who am I to commission this famous artist to do this thing? It we were actually able to again reorient around the meaning in in this and the purpose in this. And for this particular client of mine, they had experienced some mental health challenges earlier in their their adult life. And what they ended up deciding to do was rather than make a just general project about, you know, creating art in the world or, or they decided that they were going to focus it on this specific mental health experience. And they were going to intentionally go out and solicit folks to, who were, had some personal connection to that themselves. And so that there was this going to be this shared humanity in the project. And so that they actually could take the lead by creating the context for the work, for um, making it personal in this way, for giving it depth, and for actually attracting the kind of collaborator that they were looking for, instead of coming from this place of feeling like ill-equipped, less than, 
um, not fancy enough, not famous enough, you know, whatever that might be. So it's, it's, I think there's so much power when we can actually tune in to what drives us, right? And for, for this particular client of mine to be able to find that, I mean, the look on her face when that, when those pieces came together in her mind and it, it, it moved from being this kind of scary, burdensome thing that she was trying to do because she thought she should to this, this like, I mean, she just lit up. Talk about being energized. I mean, she just flew out of that session, like on fire, ready to go create something important and meaningful and substantive out in the world and not caring the least about how fancy she was or wasn't and what her credentials were or weren't and driven by her, her passion and her purpose. And it was, it was just an absolute joy to see her arrive at that. What was the result of her project? I bet it was wildly successful. Wildly successful. And also, in a sense, it kind of didn't matter because, you know, whether it had been on a, a like a, a huge scale success or something on a more personal, intimate level of success or visibility, the meaning was in the process. It was in the shared collaboration. It was in, there was so much there to, to derive meaning from and purpose from. And I think that's also one of the things that we can look for in our all of our workplace environments, right? Is that if the process itself that we're engaged in, if if the process towards working towards our goal or towards achieving the outcome, if we can find and create value, um, worthiness, integrity, meaning in the process, then whatever the outcome might be, that's only one piece of the of the puzzle, right? And we can look to that whole process and and find our sense of of um, kind of substance and and success there as much as we do in the in the outcome. You're doing tremendous work. I I don't know if you realize this, but you are amongst um, those of us that aspire to be world changers because you are changing the world. You're just changing the world one person at a time. Same thing that I'm doing. I'm changing the world one person at a time one interview at a time, um, because I do believe that one person can change the world. But what it really is, is a bunch of individuals trying to invest in one one other individual, and then it spreads. So I don't know if you even realize that you are in a very elite group of world changers. Well, thank you for saying that. And I, you know, I really do believe in the power of of an individual story. And it doesn't have to be a big fancy story either, right? And that I think there's it's again back to that that empathy, that that seeing a bit of ourselves in someone else, seeing a bit of what's possible for ourselves in someone else, or just recognizing that um, that kind of shared humanity really is what is what gives us strength to kind of keep going if we can learn to see it and tap into it. And sometimes we wall ourselves off from that in our own minds and on our hearts a little bit too. And so conversations like these, your podcast is in such an important way to help us all tap into that shared power. It really is shared power. And I see that as, as such a gift that you're doing to, to create this here. Well, I'm going to say something radical that I don't know how many people have said this to you. They probably wouldn't consider this um, from this perspective, but I do. I think your decision to file a lawsuit and go through all that that difficult horribleness that you went through was really a gift and it was a gift to force you into your purpose and passion so then you can take all the skills that you've learned as a performer 
and apply them to changing people's lives. So what do you think about me saying that it was a gift? Do you think I'm crazy? Not at all. Absolutely not. I think I I would have said the same myself. I, I do. And I also, you know, want to say that hard things aren't always for a reason and we don't always get, sometimes the only thing we get out of a really hard experience is a renewed awareness of our resilience. And I think some hard things, that's the one thing we get out of it. And that's a, a real thing. And I think this hard thing that I went through, I certainly had a renewed sense of my resilience and also an abundance of other gifts, an abundance of other gifts that came as a result of that. And I feel, I do feel very privileged and lucky that I have been able to receive those those gifts and that I was able to um, withstand that whole experience and come out the richer for it. And I mean that in a in terms of a my my inner world, not in terms of my paycheck, although that's always important too. We do have to say because you know yes. <laughs> that does you know. matter, but it's certainly not the most important thing in life. And um, yeah. yeah, I feel incredibly grateful. This this conversation has been tremendously powerful and I hope that everybody got the sense out of it that we wanted to communicate which is you know in the middle of chaos there's all there's if you look for it there's typically something good in there it might be small but there's typically something good in there if the audience would like to reach out to you if they have questions if they're interested in your coaching or any of the the other practices that you serve, how could they reach you? Yes, thank you for that. My website is IamElizabethRowe.com. So you can go to my website and, and contact me through there. You can also find me on social media at IamElizabethRowe.com. It wouldn't be .com, would it be? It would be I am Elizabeth Rowe on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but my website is IamElizabethRowe.com. You can contact me there. And if you do want to reach out to me, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, please mention that you heard me on this podcast. And I will, if it's something that is of interest to you, I would, I will, it would be my delight to make some time on my calendar and to connect with anybody who's listening today. That is extremely generous. Thank you. I, I appreciate that because I know that you're exceptionally busy. So thank you for that gift of time because in, in my my thought process with time, that's the only thing that we can't make more of. And when you give it, it truly is a gift. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I, I believe so strongly in this community and in what you are creating and in the power of women and in the power of conversation. And so when I'm able to amplify that in any way that I can. That is my, that is part of my purpose. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your purpose with us today. And thank you for being so willing to be vulnerable uh, about your story and your journey. And I really appreciate your time. And I, I reserve the right to call you back on another time to catch up to what you're doing uh, in the future. Love it. I will be looking forward to it. Excellent. And I want to thank all of you for listening this week, and we'll see you again next time. This is just the beginning. That's our show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and your unwavering support and your continued belief 
in this movement that has become much bigger than me, much bigger than just a podcast. It has become this forward momentum that we are all doing together. If you are ready or you know somebody that is, that is ready to tell your story and share your value with the world, please connect with me. You can reach me at audra at womeninthearena.net. I am so honored and thankful that you will share your story with me and I'll make sure that it is well taken care of. I will never stop thanking each and every one of you and I cannot wait to talk to you again next week as we share another woman's story and we celebrate her doing extraordinary things in plain sight. We'll see you next time. 